the focus of our attention, but I'll just read verses 1 and 6 of 1 Samuel 14. 14.1. Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the Philistine garrison that is on yonder side. But he did not tell his father. Now verse 6. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised Philistines. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you are a God who goes before us into battle that you are our pillar of fire into the dark of the unknown. And we pray, even as we consider this hour together, that you would be the one who directs our paths, give words to speak and give ears to hear and, and hearts to delight in what you say. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I preached on this text 13 years ago in Louisville, Kentucky, at a church anniversary service during which we reminisced how God had wonderfully worked for them in Louisville 20 years earlier. That was back in 2010. And we reminisced how uh, Bob and Ginger Brown and Ted and Carolyn Hart and Jim and Pam Angel and Tom and Doretha Hornback were huddled together in the Bob Brown basement on Butler Avenue where I would preach to them in 1990 from a beverage bar, beverage bar basement pulpit, and it was prayerfully decided from there that, that the church would go for it, meaning to dare, to risk failure, to trust God, to plant a church, and then eventually for them to call Pastor Jim Sevastio, he wasn't the pastor then, he was a theological student from New Jersey to come as a financially supported preacher and they were gulping because the long-term funds just weren't there but they were hoping just like Saul's son Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14 here who said perhaps the Lord will work for us and now it's three decades later Reformed Baptist Church of Louisville is thriving and they're making a global impact in the kingdom of God. This kind of reminds me of, of Harbor Church. Last Sunday night, we were huddled together right over there in that annex, deciding to go for it, to dare, to risk failure, to trust God for a church resuscitation, to call a man a young man named Matthew Morgan, to come as a financially supported preacher with some gulping. I want you to think with me of another daring-to-risk individual who had a perhaps God-will-work-for-us mindset. And it's a she. Her name is Gladys Allward. She was a missionary to China 
She began accumulating orphans whom she evangelized and nurtured. A girl named Ninepence was her first child. She was a tiny abandoned girl she'd purchased for that amount. Ninepence. And eventually, Gladys adopted nearly 100 children in the town of Shanxi. And then in 1940, the Japanese invaded China and began a bloody westward slaughter. And and Gladys was counseled to flee quickly for your life. But she couldn't leave the children behind to be mowed down or abused. So Gladys attempted the unthinkable. She set out with her 94 needy and noisy children with enemy troops right on her heels on a dangerous trek across the mountains and across the Yellow River into safety beyond the Siam border. And astonishingly, with God's almighty guidance and protection, they made it alive. So you see, times of great distress have often been the occasion for great faith. That was true of Gladys Allward in the 1940s in China. It was true of the Reformed Baptist Fellowship of Louisville back in 1990 in Kentucky. It was also true in 1040-ish B.C. in the life of Jonathan in Israel. And now let's just harbor 2023. Let's learn from this incident, this 1 Samuel 14, 1 through 23, under five main heads of exposition, and then four lines of application. Come on with me to the first of the five main heads of exposition, and that is fearful immobility in verses 2 and 3. Fearful immobility. It says there, and Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which was in Migron, and the people who were with him were about 600. You see, at this time in the history, Israel was down for the account. They were on the canvas. They were oppressed and afraid. Their notorious enemies the Philistines were terrorizing them again. They were outnumbered. It describes in verse 5 of chapter 13 that they had 30,000 chariots, the Philistines did. And they had 6,000 horsemen. And their infantry was as many as the sands on the seashore. Saul's forces, on the other hand, were just leaking away. They were running away because of the odds. They were hiding in caves and thickets and pits. That's what it says in 13. Six, and there were only 600 left, it says in 1315, and they were trembling and poorly armed. It says in 1319 that there were no blacksmiths in the land of Israel. So nobody had swords, nobody had spears except for Saul and Jonathan. All anybody else had were shovels and axes and sickles and goads. It was kind of like the modern counterpart of state-of-the-art tanks and heavy mortar artillery facing off against John Deere tractors and true-value pitchforks. It really wasn't much of a fair battle. And Israel's leadership, look, they were hunkered down near Gibeah. It says in 14.2, Saul was there, look, under the pomegranate tree. 
Now, Youngblood tells us that a pomegranate tree was an exotic and luxurious kind of a fruit. And Youngblood says, and so we see this depicts a sitting in ease under that tree and in timidity. You see, Saul, we think of the context of chapter 13, he had disobeyed the Lord. Remember, he went and sacrificed before he was supposed to with the coming of Samuel. So Saul had been rejected as king, it says in 1314. So Saul is under that pomegranate tree. He's despondent. He's, he's reeling from his sense of rejection. And he's paralyzed to act. He was pathetically passive. He was failing to lead. Saul was pouting under the pomegranate. It says in verse 3 of chapter 14, that Ahijah was the priest at this time. Now, this is a remnant of the bad formalism of the past because it says that Ahijah was actually wearing the ephod and it refers to his uncle Ichabod's father. What does Ichabod mean? The Lord has departed. When Israel had been destroyed by the Philistines in the past. You see, this is all a sour note reminding us of the old spiritually bankrupt regime, the dead formalism of Eli, the priest, who had a form of godliness but denied the power. In fact, look, it says in verse 18 of chapter 14, Saul wants help. He says, bring the ark. When's the last time they brought the ark? That was in 1 Samuel 4 when they were using the ark of God as a rabbit's foot thinking it would give them luck and favor in battle. You see, the point is that the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel and Saul here under the pomegranate tree is just a shell of a king and he's trembling in a sense of paralyzed indecision. So he, he was sitting, Saul was, and, and fretting. And his fear was kind of like that flu that's going around, that influenza A High fever, it's highly contagious. And nearly all of the 600 men who were with him were fevered and clattering with that sense of trembling fear. That's our first point, fearful immobility in 2 and 3. Come on to our second point. Our second point is daring activity in 1 and 4 through 6. As we see, it says that Jonathan... The son of Saul came and said to the young man who was his armor bearer, Come, let's cross over to the Philistines. You see, even though everybody else was fevered and trembling, there were two men in Israel who were cool and had set jaws. Two men, Jonathan and his armor bearer. And in Jonathan was a spark of bold daring that was fanned into a flame by his Faith. Look what it says in verse 1. Jonathan says to his armor bearer, Come on, let's cross over to the Philistines on yonder side. But he didn't tell his father. Why do you think Jonathan didn't tell dad? Well, it's because he knew dad would douse that spark of optimism and hope in his soul by Saul's chicken little sky is falling pessimism. I, I see a lot of Saul and me sometimes with my own sense of pessimism. 
But Jonathan wouldn't permit himself to be doused. See, Jonathan had a different spirit. It says in verse 4 of verse 16 that the Lord had given him, 4 of chapter 13, it speaks of in 4 of chapter 13 that Jonathan had already had a degree of success by a stealth attack. He, he smote a garrison, it says there. So Jonathan wasn't a despondent sitter, puddle glum, was he? He was rather an optimistic doer. <laughs> Jonathan was a daring David. That's why the two of those guys got along well later in the narrative. And Jonathan slipped away unnoticed with his armor bearer. I understand the geographical challenge that was in play here. It's described in verse 4. It says, Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp crag on one side and a sharp crag on the other side, and the name of the one was Bozed, and the name of the other was Senna. So we see here that we could describe it that uh, Bozes was a crag old slippery. We could liken that to the balcony over there. And over on this side was the crag called Old Thorny, like the platform here. And in between was the Wadi Sewet. And the thought was, could we slip down this crag, go across the open area, and climb up Old Slippery? This was the challenge that was before them. Both were steep crags. They'd go from the, the, the south side to the north side, but that's considered to be militarily really a foolish move. We slide down here, full view of them, we got to climb up there. This is impassable. This is impossible. Foolish. But look what it says in verse 6. It says there, but Jonathan said, come on, let's cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. You see, it's an intimidating set of obstacles that are staring at us, Jonathan says, but it's really not unscalable. Come on, said Jonathan, let's find a way. Dale Davis says this, the circumstances didn't stimulate optimism. But Davis says, this isn't optimism, this is faith. Some people are natural optimists, but they don't know any better. But faith can arise even when no reason exists for optimism. That's what David had when he, when he looked at Goliath in the valley of Elah, that giant, and he was just the runt of a man. David could stand before a bear. David could stand before a lion. David could stand before a giant. It was faith, not merely optimism. Now, humanly speaking, the plan was utterly impossible. Possible. The idea of coming down in the open, in the valley, then climbing up hands and feet. You see, alone doing that, a single stone rolled down from old craggy. That could crush them and they could lie helplessly in the valley. But, but those odds didn't deter Jonathan. He said, come on, let's go. Kind of reminds us of, well, back in 2001, when there was that 9-11 event where the passengers of Flight 93 were faced by Muslim terrorists in an airplane fuselage, and 
They, the terrorists, were up front, and in the back was a guy named Todd Beamer, remember? And the thought was, between us and them, for us to make a charge against them. But Beamer said, we can't just sit here, let's roll. Yeah, the same kind of spirit that was, and we know the benefit that came from that, and there's going to be a benefit that's going to come from this, with the, the let's roll against the odds kind of a spirit. But Gladys Allward said to herself in China with all these kids, we just can't sit still. Come on, kids, let's roll, she basically said. And that's what Jonathan said to the armor bear. Come on, let's roll. You see, it was bold faith in God. It was daring. That, that's what I mean by daring activity. So having seen fearful immobility and daring activity, come thirdly with me to admitted uncertainty. Admitted uncertainty. It says there in 6b, Jonathan says to the armor bear, perhaps the Lord will work for us. You see, Jonathan's faith is not certain regarding the outcome. He says, perhaps. In fact, this is the Hebrew word of lie. Perhaps, he says. Or King James Version, I think, says, peradventure. Or yours may say, Jonathan says, it may be. John Heaney, who has given me great help in this sermon a decade and a half ago. In fact, he and I just talked about it yesterday. John Heaney says this, Jonathan isn't certain about this, but he's willing to risk his life on this perhaps. Perhaps. See, beloved, the humbling reality is we don't always know what God will do regarding our endeavors. Will he bless them or will he blight them? You see, perhaps acknowledges our ignorance. Now, I realize there are some people who, who know exactly what God is going to do when they start an endeavor. My wife has cancer, but I know that God is going to heal her. Now, that may sound very wise, but it's not necessarily wise because we don't know. Another man may say, I am hopeful that God will heal my wife. Perhaps God will heal my wife. You see, Jonathan displays that kind of wisdom. John Heaney says this, there's more true faith in Jonathan's perhaps than in the so-called faith talk. It's more humble. It's more honest to say facing endeavors, perhaps. But, but Jonathan's faith here is more than just humble, isn't it? It's downright adventuresome. It's, it's daring, Dill Davis says this. It's the imagination of faith, Davis says. His clear conviction about God produces great expectation of God. Blakey says this, A project of unprecedented daring came into his mind. Uh -huh, just same kind of kindred spirit of David who saw Goliath in the valley and everybody's trembling. And David had something kindled in his soul, something that, that he was going to do a dare. And you know what? Such are the ponderings of a man and a woman who knows God. We would dare. That's, a, that's who David was in Psalm 18. It says there, For by thee, O Lord, I can run against a troop. And by thee, O Lord, I can leap over a wall. 
And you know, sometimes God kindles in our hearts daring designs to attempt something great, doesn't he? And it's a godly thing to fan those dares into a flame with perhaps, instead of dousing them with the water of chicken little pessimism. Blakey says this, don't stifle it under the notion that you are too weak to bring anything out of it. Because you are too weak to bring anything out of it. It says in Philippians 4, but I can do all things, finish it, through Christ who strengthens me. We're not capable, but through Christ we can do all things. So it's so admitted certainty, fearful immobility, daring activity, admitted uncertainty. Come on to be thirdly now to sovereign ability, 6C. Sovereign ability. Jonathan says, perhaps the Lord will work for us. And, and here's that sovereign ability. For the Lord is not restrained, hindered. The Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. <laughs> Jonathan is saying, statistical and circumstantial odds are frankly irrelevant with God. Because it says in Joshua 23.10, God is a God who says to Israel, with me, one of you shall put to flight a thousand. Odds make no difference if God is in the equation. You see, Jonathan was unsure of what God will do. But he's not unsure at all about what God can do. If he wills to do it. It says in Job 42.1, I know, Lord, that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. And it says in Daniel 4.35, God does all he pleases in heaven and on the earth. No one, not a thousand against one, no one can thwart his hand. You see, this Jonathan knows for sure is that the outcome won't be determined by his daring activity, but by the Lord's sovereign ability and his willingness. Because he's not restrained to save by many or by few. Remember the story of Gideon and the Midianites were as many as the sand of the seashore? That's, that's, that's hundreds of thousands. And what did Gideon have? 300 men who lapped water from the stream. But it didn't matter because God was the one who was their field general. And in verse 2, it speaks of this, this, this garrison of 20 that they were facing. Two against 20. Now, there were the sands of the seashore Philistines behind them, armed to the teeth. But, but that's not an issue with God. Think of the 11 in the upper room. After the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, those 11 went out of the upper room and they turned the world upside down. 11 against the world. It wasn't even a match because God was with the 11. So we see God's, God's sovereign ability it emboldened Jonathan to dare and venture out. You see, this Jonathan knew for sure that nothing can stop God. God doesn't need favorable circumstances. Heaney says this, Our being outnumbered and underarmed and helpless is no hindrance for God at all. 
Rather, it's just the situation he delights to work in. Some of you older guys. 1984, Detroit Tigers. We had this guy on our team named Kirk Gibson. Gibson would always love it. We're down by two or three in the bottom of the ninth with a man or two on base, and he's got the stick in his hand. Oh, he'd love to put it out of that. You remember him, don't you? He loved God is a lot like Kirk Gibson. God loves to have the stick in his hand when the circumstances are dark because God loves to pull his hand out of his robe and show his power in circumstances just like this. You see, here in 1 Samuel 14, the stage is set for God to bear his arm. Just same God who loved to bear his arm when Israel was cornered against the Red Sea with the, the global military champs, the Egyptians bearing down on him. Oh, God loved to take his hand out of his robe and bear his arm. He did it with Daniel in the lion's den. He did it when Jesus was sealed in the tomb. He's going to do it at the end, the last day. It's going to be bad for the church. Revelation chapter 20. We're going to be surrounded just like in C.S. Lewis, uh, Tolkien's The Battle at Helm's Deep. The orcs were surrounding But at that darkest hour, then came Gandalf and his white horse riding in. That's Revelation chapter 19. Jesus comes and returns in the darkest hour, better than Gandalf. So, so, when someone utters a daring, perhaps the Lord will do something. You know, there are always naysayers. Always. I still remember. Remember 1996. We're in the Rose Park gym, and the question was, should we dare to buy this building on Douglas Avenue? Remember that? Remember that meeting? And, and, and the bishop was brought up. Should we buy Douglas Avenue for $150,000? And the best with the parsonage as well. And there were all these naysayers. Yes, but this, we won't have enough money for this, and it's such a hungry building, and on and on and on it went. And there was this, there was this armor bear that stood up. You remember his name? Dale Miller. Dale Miller stood up and said, Why did I move out here to be a part of this church in Holland? Sure, there are dangers. Sure, there are difficulties. Sure, there may be debts. But if we don't do this now, what do we think we're even here for? And he turned the tide against naysayers. He says this, But perhaps he will work for us. And Jonathan is willing to step out in faith and risk his life. Because I'm inclined to think he will do this since he's proved himself to be that kind of a God. And that's where they were in Philistia and that's where we are here in Holland. I know our pessimistic hearts, and I'm one of them too. Kevin could testify in elders' meetings over the years. I I have been the pessimistic puddle-glum at times. Our pessimistic heart craved 100% certainty before stepping out. We might fail. Even the apostles didn't bat a thousand. There were times when Paul went, 2 Thessalonians 2, and Satan thwarted him, he says. Or Acts chapter 16, we were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word of God in Asia. Sure, everything doesn't always work the way we want it to work, but you know... 
Jonathan didn't just sit around under a pomegranate tree waiting for a 20-foot-tall angel to come and give him specifics, marching orders. He said, Jonathan ventured out on a perhaps. He said, let's roll. And that leads us fifthly to remarkable victory. Remarkable victory, 7 through 23. Let's roll, Jonathan said to his armor bearer. Come on, let's cross over. And look what the armor bearer said in verse 7. Oh, blessed armor bearers. He said, I'm here. I'm with you. That same kindred spirit. And, and so Jonathan says, yeah, if they say to us as we're coming up, you come up here, then that's a sign for good to us. Verse 11 says, then they went and they began to come across the valley and they revealed themselves. And the Philistines said, look, it says, behold, those Hebrews, they're coming out of their holes in the ground. Look at those pathetic farmers. There was condescending mockery going on. They shouted down from the balcony or from the crag. They shouted down, come up here and we'll teach you a lesson. You see how condescending. You see, the world ever scorns men of faith. Those Philistines probably didn't think that the Israelites would or, or could climb up steep, old, slippery. So they went back to their cigars and to their blackjack playing around their fire. But look, Jonathan and the armor bearer, they slid down old, thorny, across the field. They climbed Rock climbed up, old, slippery. Look, it says, verse 13, hands and feet. See how vulnerable they are? And there was this surprise ascent. And once they got to the top, these two guys, Jonathan the armor bearer, they got into a mighty man zone. You know, getting into the zone is. NBA player, he's in the zone. Wherever he throws it from 30 feet out, it splashes. And so for them, every time they would sing, swing a sword, it hit. Every time they'd shoot an arrow, it would hit the heart. Every time they'd uh, throw a javelin, it would strike the mark. Throw a fist, it would hit the target. They were in the zone, and it says they mowed down 20 men. And as a result, there were 20 less teachers in Philistia. Remember, they had said, we'll teach you a lesson. 20 less of them breathing now in Philistia. You see, these men ventured on God, Jonathan the armor bearer did, and God showed up. 14 says they slaughtered 20 men in half an acre. And then 15 says, and there began to be a trembling. And is it, was it an earthquake? It may have been an earthquake. It could be literal, or it could even be trembling, meaning a figurative panic. Everybody was trembling among Philistia. Matthew Henry says this, He who knows the heart knows how to make it tremble. You see, God turned the tables, and verse 16 says their, their hearts began melting away, and everybody got on those, those chariots, half-dressed guys. Think of it, just hanging out of the wagons as they hightailed it out of there in retreat. And verse 15, look, we say, previously parked under a pomegranate tree, Saul, we see he sees all this commotion. And he's, he's aroused. He takes a head count. We had 600. We only got 598. Two are missing. Jonathan and his armor bearer, where are they? And see, they, Saul realized what was happening. And Saul rallied. We see in 21 that those previous turncoat traders who had gone into hiding, everybody wants to be in the winning side. We got the mo now. 
we're winning. And they return to Israel, it says in verse 22. Out from caves and thickets and pits, the AWOL runaways returned, and they were given a set jaw. And verse 23 says, and so the Lord delivered Israel that day, and all the glory went to him. And it was a fulfillment of Joshua 23.10, where the Lord says, one of you shall put to flight a thousand. That's our passage. Striking, isn't it? Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for he is not restrained to save by many or by few. Just, just some lessons before we go home. Consider a handful. First, consider concerning mission endeavors. Concerning mission endeavors. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. Think back in church history at a time when England there, at that time, few cared for India. And there was a meeting in, of a Baptist association in Nottingham in May of 1792. And William Carey stepped up with a Jonathan Let's Roll kind of a plan. He preached a two-point sermon, and the first was, expect great things from God regarding India. And secondly, attempt great things for God. And a certain gray-headed, Saul-like man stood up and he said, Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen world, he will do it without your help or mine. And the young man was quieted. But the next day, when the convention was about to close, Carey stood up again and he said, Is there nothing again? That is going to be done for India? And Kerry said, you men, you're like the, twelve the ten spies who came back from Canaan and said, the giants are there and we're but grasshoppers. And Andrew Fuller stood up and said, he's right, that armor bearer. He's right. And the tide was turned. And the end result is that God has brought great Salvation and revival to Indria so that a guy like Sam Bopari, who is our friend, a Dalit untouchable man, is a man of God who is a pastor there in India. You see, the upshot is such perhaps hearts carried the day for foreign missions. And foreign missions haven't been the same since. Carey went to India and the Lord smiled on his Dare and an uncountable multitude have been snatched from the fire in India. And it's all traced back to one Jonathan named Carey and one armor bearer named Andrew Fuller who stood up. Fuller said, I'm behind you, brother. I'm behind you. You think, think about this fellow, Rick, Rick Kirsten. I think he's, he's kind of our Jonathan in some ways now. And the way there can be armor bearers among us. Oh, blessed armor bearers. And so we see such things sent Livingston to Africa, Peyton to the South Pacific, Gladys Allward across the mountains, Jim Sevastian to Louisville, and how about even Matt Morgan to Holland, Michigan, and not to even mention the brave heart that God has given to Matt Morgan to come among us in this set of circumstances? What is he thinking? I think he's thinking 
perhaps the Lord will work for us. For he's not restrained to save by many or by few. I still remember, even in Holland, Michigan, missions. There's a little woman in our church, wispy little woman, and she had the idea of Woodside Bible study. And I was a pomegranate. So, come on, what? we put all this activity into Woodside Public School there. Maybe we'll get a handful. But what do we? There were times we had 70 children at Woodside Bible School, a public school, hearing the gospel. And who knows what upcoming decades are going to bring regarding children who had the word of God planted in their heart. The last day will show it. But that wispy woman facing a pomegranate saw said, let's try it. And then there were armor bears, young people who did did puppet shows. And and they presented the gospel to these children in that gymnasium. They're, oh, just consider our mission endeavors and a perhaps mindset. Secondly, not only concerning mission endeavors, but how about concerning dark circumstances? Concerning dark circumstances. Some of us may be here today sitting under a pomegranate tree in the dark shade. Maybe you're today in a horrible situation. You're in an intimidating dilemma. I don't know what's going on here. Maybe there's a young man whose heart has been captivated by a seemingly disinterested maiden. What do you do with that? How about giving her a call on the basis of a perhaps the Lord will work? I know a guy who did that just a while back. And there's the rest of the story. Or, or what about someone who's unemployed? He, why not call the manager on a perhaps? Maybe starting a new business on a perhaps. Think of how Esther, there, there, she was in Persia. The Jews had a death warrant. Her armor bearer Mordecai came to her and says, Who knows, perhaps you have attained royalty for a time such as this. And Esther dared to do something dangerous as she strode toward the king, risking her own neck. Perhaps the Lord will work for me as she went up into a slippery throne room. Heaney says this, No matter how dark the circumstances, we are never more than a moment away from God acting on our behalf. Let that instill hope and courage in your darkest hour. The Lord can turn the tables as quickly as you can say, pomegranate. So, so maybe your, your marriage is in a war zone and there's no hope for peace. Maybe you have irreparable relationship breakdowns that could never be repaired Maybe perhaps we should go ahead and make ourselves vulnerable. Climb up an old slippery. Oh, I know there could be an avalanche, a boulder rolled down on us, and we'd be totally humiliated and and devastated. But maybe we should just go and make ourselves vulnerable. Venturing on a perhaps. Or how about thirdly, how about concerning personal evangelism? Personal evangelism. Some people in, in our lives seem lost beyond saving. Our brother Ken was telling us about a man who had visited their house, and the guy is an intellectual giant, and Ken kept bringing the gospel, but it didn't come home like mortars, but just like peas that were deflected off. 
Some people seem like they're lost beyond saving, aren't they? They're not interested. They're hardened. They're even antagonistic. That's okay. Because it says in Ephesians 2.1, they're dead in transgression and sins. But, you know, God is a God who can make alive. A few years ago, there was a farmer on Port Sheldon, a strawberry farm. And early on, there was drought in the spring, and the strawberries died. And everybody said, just plow it all up. He said, no. He kept watering. He kept watering, watering. Perhaps the Lord will revive them. I need a bumper crop, he told me, that year. Perhaps, perhaps we'll raise up the soul of that man who visited Ken's house. The Lord is not restrained to save by many of our few. John Heaney says this, the Lord doesn't need them, that is the sinner himself. The Lord doesn't need them, sinners, to help him. He doesn't need them to be favorably disposed toward him. It's it's when they are dead in sin that he makes them alive. A dead person doesn't contribute to its resurrection. It's a sovereign God. He says this. It's when in a far country, far from God, that he can bring them to their senses. You think of someone you love, and this person has been so many decades in defiance against God, but God is able, perhaps. Perhaps he still will. Don't don't stop praying and witnessing for the most unlikely of sinners. Heaney's right and he says this. For God, there are no easy saves. You you think you were an easy save? You were a piece of work. And even the most most peachy personalities among us were dead in transgressions and sin and made to be alive. There are no easy sins. We're all dead bones. You see, so it is with unbelieving friends. And maybe this day, how about even here, in this room right now, I'd be really naive to think that everybody here is saved. Because there are some unsaved people who are among us. And you've been sitting here and you've been watered like a, and you're just a dead stick even right now. You have been, you haven't responded. But could it be that God would work in you? You, th- you think of that. The, the thief on the cross began the day. I just heard someone say recently, the thief on the cross was probably someone who had scorned Jesus until he was horse hanging on the cross. But God worked in his heart and gave him life. And with that craggy voice he still had left, he, he, he ventured out and said, perhaps he dared to plead that Jesus would save him. He said, when you enter your kingdom, would you remember me? And there was perhaps <laughs> this day you shall be with me in paradise. Oh, I, I plead with you who've been here for weeks and months and years. Venture on Christ. Say, oh, please remember me, Jesus. I believe in you. May this be the day when you believe, because it could be your last day like that thief on the cross. Believe. It would be the first time of the 10,000th and first time. Believe. But just lastly and finally, just consider concerning Church risk-taking. Church risk-taking. I recently looked at a John Piper sermon from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota from 1987. And it was about the future plans of their church. Kind of like we are. We're looking at future plans. Piper said this in this sermon. So here, here we are today with, not with Matt Morgan, but he said... 
with David Livingston in our midst as a candidate for a position in pastoral care that's not even in the budget for this year? How do we know we can afford this pastoral addition? Piper says, how did we know we could make a 35% budget increase three years ago? And a 20% increase this year? And at the same time, get our mission commitment up 30%. The answer is we don't know. And you know Piper, he gets loud. We don't know, he says. And, and God doesn't always mean for us to know beforehand what we can afford in ministry. He means for us to get the world on our heart and to keep on risking for his glory. Let me pause and insert some Mark Jansky, not just John Piper. Sure, beloved, it's, it's possible to be recklessly risky, yes. It's possible to try to build a tower without adequate resources. Yes, Luke 14. But Harbor Church, I suggest to you, Harbor's problem hasn't been overdosing on risky recklessness. I continue with Piper. Piper says, I was talking to a board member of another church recently who said that they were concerned about how much extra work their pastor seems to have to do. But he said the board still wanted to wait before they add any extra staff because they are not sure about the heating system and how it will perform this winter so they can know if they can afford it. Piper says this, If that mentality doesn't change in that church, they are in big trouble. God does not honor that kind of tidy caution for the cause of God. God loves the mission battle cry of William Carey, expect great things from God, attempt great things from God. If we wait until we have success in our back pocket, we won't need God anymore. And I just finished reading the autobiography of George Mueller, who was somebody who prayed great things for God. Homestretch, you know, Piper says this. And are we dedicated with all our power that God mightily expires within us to spread the vision of the glory of the grace of God across this city and across all unreached people of the world? If so, then let us be done with wavering. Let us put our hand to the plow and stop looking back. What risk have we ever dreamed of that would be too great for this cause? Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Harbor Church, Harbor Church, listen, we stand at a point of opportunity. And I suggest to you that the mindset of Jonathan and his armor bearer ought to be our mindset. Perhaps, perhaps, he's that kind of a God. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are weak and you are powerful. Help, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.